a letter that he writes me and that I've kept. was just a clip to whet your appetite, Alicia Hall Moran, in an excerpt of her Motown project. The music here is uh, John Dowland's Flow My Tears, layered onto Smokey Robinson's Cruisin' from the Motown songbook. I'm Martha Goof, and this is Sparks and Wiry Cries, the podcast. Erica is out today, literally finishing the last edits on her dissertation, so I am all by my lonesome. At any rate, today we have an incredible treat for you guys. For our May issue, we are focusing on song out of the box, basically ways in which classical song infiltrates popular culture, or perhaps ways in which art song arises out of somewhere else completely. So in celebration of what we are bringing you, this is an interview with mezzo-soprano Alicia Hall Moran. Take a listen to what we recorded a few months back. Alicia Hall Moran is trained classically as a mezzo-soprano at the Manhattan School of Music, and we are recording this podcast in mid-March 2012, where she's just come off a week of singing Bess in Porgy and Bess, stepping in for Audrey MacDonald. Her Motown project is a fusion of classical and Motown, but is in reality so much more than that. I saw it at the Highline Ballroom on a very rainy, cold November night in Manhattan, the venue was bustling with an audience that was hip, cool, and intellectual. Um, the energy in the air was that we were going to be a party to something that was just about to explode onto the scene but hadn't quite been discovered yet. Um, I cozied up into a corner of the bar and listened to what ultimately made my jaw drop. The gentleman beside me was an avid Alicia fan who had followed her from venue to venue, and when he learned that I was roommates with her back in opera summer camp, he was floored. Alicia, welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. Thank you. We're gonna get into the nitty gritty of the Motown project in, in a minute, but first I just wanted to preface all of this with the fact that uh, Sparks and Wiry Cries focuses on art song, um, but that this issue is about stretching the boundaries of song. Can you, talk about your own personal history with performing and studying song repertoire and how you eventually came to choose the path that you're on now. Growing up in New York City, I was brought to see Stephanie Mills sing The Wiz, which turned out 
we see now to be really well written songs with really incredible harmony that fuse classical uh, or, or rather Germanic um, bass driven harmony with gospel music, African American spiritual singing, jazz, the blues, and pop music uh, during kind of a legendary time. So that's kind of what I would call just building good taste hmm. in a child, you know, it's good exposures. And then um, on my mother's side, I'm related to Hall Johnson, who was one of the early and original preservers of slave songs in the Americas, which also are, some of which are Negro spirituals, are mm -hmm. known as Negro spirituals. So there are names like H.T. Burley, Eva Jesse, and Hall Johnson, really to an exemplary level, leading this idea that they were going to canonize and orchestrate, if you will, even if just for piano and voice or for uh, SATB choir, the songs that were dying. His mother, Alice, after whom I'm named, was a former slave. So I think these early 20th century thinkers, uh, like Zora Neale Hurston would be a very famous example of someone on the anthropologist side. Hall Johnson was a violist, and he um, was one of the first African Americans, if not the first, to perform at Carnegie Hall in a string quartet. And, you know, so his idea, his breakthrough idea, his Motown project, if you will, was to take his mother's songs and bring them to the concert hall because he knew on a taste level how good they were. And I think it's really eye-opening the more exposure you get to what is thought of as the greatest music in the world. Certainly no one argues that Bach might be one of the producers of the greatest music in the world. When you get really exposed to the inner workings of that, it helps you to identify greatness in other things that may be common and that may be nearby, the songs of your mother. Because you hear not just the melody she's singing, but you feel the drag of the, the counterpoint that would be there. So I think that I don't know, but I know that I imagine that I have the same exact impulse that he did. So I'm performing classical music or going to opera music camp and hearing the greatest arias ever sung, sung by some of the best young voices in the country, and I think in the world, really, um, especially the years we went. Um, I'm thinking that, yeah, like Smokey Robinson wrote some things that are also as good. Just as good, yeah. And that because the pop side, when it's great, gets so much financial reward, there's sometimes not a need to discuss its greatness on the music side. So I think the need to just bring the conversation just a little closer together has to happen inside yourself. I think I figured that out once I had kids and I was by myself a lot. It's like, well, if I want to have this conversation, I better start having it. So did it happen? When was the genesis of the Motown Project? It was shortly after... It was a very specific moment. I was coming back from a European tour with Bill T. Jones, Arnie Zane Dance Company. And that was the longest trip I'd had away from my babies. And so I was, I'd had more sleep than I'd had. You know, the dancers, everybody's tired. 
and you're energized because, because you know, my hard work starts at 11 p.m. through 4 a.m. You know, anything I'm doing on the stage just doesn't even get close to the levels of anxiety with twin babies. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm good. So we're on the plane and we're about to come back. So I'm very open. My mind is open. I'm trying to suck it all in the last few hours. This is, I think, coming from Spain, I think. And the airplane was playing Motown 50th anniversary broadcast on the, the little inner airline radio. And I plugged in, you know, thinking, oh, I'll listen to a song or two. I listened to it probably for five hours coming back. I couldn't get over how much my vocal cords wanted to, I wanted to phonate. Like they were already vibrating the whole time. It was like I learned all the songs in silence while I was just feeling them so deeply. Yeah, the way you do with any favorite song. Yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. And the, the experience of not being able to make any noise on it, but approximating my chords mm -hmm. to those songs. I knew I could sing those songs well before I got off the plane. So I remember I got home and I got online and I ordered the Motown 50 book. Um, they had a special edition of a great collection of the golden era songs. And I um, didn't think about it for a, couple, a week or so. And then it finally came and I put the book on the piano and I just went to town. I could not believe when you look at the, the, the chord structure, how similar it was to a lot of the classical music that I was working on at the time and that I also really enjoy and have more of an affinity towards. And then I went on Amazon and I bought a great Nelson George book about the history of Motown. And combined with understanding the stories and understanding that they used players from the Detroit Symphony when they recorded, beyond realizing that these great songs were also just penned by men and women whose parents made them take piano lessons too. So they have read the same little Schumann pieces. They've played the same little Mozart songs, the little etudes, the, the Bach. They've, they, they've had the same training probably that I've had, identically, because my parent, my dad's from Oklahoma City. He had a piano in the house. All his sisters play. What did they play? So then can, mm -hmm. you, can you talk about the ensemble that you put together or that you had in your head? Because there were, there was such a huge range of types of instruments that you had on stage. Instruments that are usually, you know, you had the Baroque recorder, right? Yes. And then, but you also had, obviously, I mean, your husband was playing jazz piano. You had, you had all sorts of really interesting orchestration for these pieces. Can you talk about how you thought that up or if that was a, a collaborative effort, how that worked? The Motown sound is defined beyond the harmonies really by the, the rhythm section. So I wanted to be careful because I knew I was going to be using my head voice in realizing Motown to not put any instrument in there that was going to fight with what I needed to do vocally, which was going to be something a lot more reedy than you would normally get in Motown, um, in those great Motown voices, the great Motown voices. So I decided to use uh, taiko drums, which are um, Japanese drums made, uh, well, very famous by the Kodo drummers of Japan. Um, so you're having skin 
on wood and the skin is treated a certain way and they're using a certain kind of mount so that even though the sound is huge because its purpose is communal and the point of it is really deeply communicative that music um it has a softness in the strike no matter how loud it is and when there are many taiko drums at play it can be extremely loud it's always soft on and it the, would balance the, what you were doing yeah, yeah. because i need because the articulators in classical music, it's just really, it's not a, a microphone-based communication technique. So I really need to be able to, I need you to feel the way I say T, B, M, I need it to really come through. And that's really how the whole thing built. I knew it would be super, super corny to try to get a Motown cover band and then just have me sing classical on top of it. And we're talking here for those for those who who uh, haven't heard it or who are who have yet to hear the clips. Um, the the operatic arias that were sort of interwoven among the melodies, the Motown melodies and harmonies, right? Yeah. Why don't we take a listen to some more of that performance? This is what's going on from the Motown songbook, paired with a portion from Purcell's opera Dido and Aeneas. Peace and I are strangers grown. You can hear Purcell's figured bass in the harp throughout the entirety of this excerpt. So 
can you li what, list just list for us what the ensemble was? At the high line, it was taiko drums played by Kaori Watanabe, classical guitar. I, I would normally just say guitar, but because we're going through so many genres, I wouldn't be very specific as Spanish style guitar. Thomas Flippin, and he's classically trained and plays classically professionally. Um, I had Taurus Mateen, who is an electric bassist and upright jazz bassist. He's played on a, also on a bunch of hip hop recordings, jazz, contemporary R&B records um, and live performances. So he has a whole other knowledge in him. And he also is a member of my husband's trio, The Bandwagon. So he has a lot of my husband's information in him. Mm -hmm in a way no one would ever discuss or share, mm -hmm. but that when he's on the set, he can hear the parts of me that also relate to Jason, mm -hmm. who's been his partner musically for 10 years also. Mm -hmm. So then we're having that, that conversation. Jason is your husband. My husband. And yes. at the High Line, he joined us on piano because he was in town, which was great. And it was the first time I've had him on at the same time as the harpist, who's also classically trained, Adan Vasquez who lives in Washington Heights and is a, also a great educator. And he brings to bear an incredible wealth of information about Latin American music and classical composers of Dominican descent, um, of which there are so many. And so he's a great source of other versions of rhythm and of also the okay. Baroque recorder. Oh, right. I yeah. brought him on new. He was a high school student at LaGuardia, and I was talking to his mother about art, and she said, my son plays Baroque recorder. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, he plays clarinet at LaGuardia, but he really wants to do recorder, and that's what he does a lot. And I fell in love with that story so much. Like, what kind of child with a mother this cool and beautiful in New York City wants to play Baroque recorder so badly <laughs> That he doesn't also want to play the clarinet. I mean, cool. it's, it's so in, insane almost. I had yeah. to meet this boy and he was absolutely wonderful. That's so cool. Um, and I brought him. And then uh, operatic baritone, Stephen Herring. Right. Is the male. He's wonderful. And he is yeah. wonderful. So when you have this cast of characters um, at the High Line, but it was different for any of these, for some of the other Motown Project performances you've done, how do you work that out? I mean, I think as classically trained musicians, we are very, we very specifically plan and prepare, you know, every single moment that's going to happen musically. If we're doing a Schubert song, we, we've talked about, I mean, it's just all on the page and everything we're trying to do is on the page and we're trying to realize what's there. And so what I'm trying to get at is how do you, who is rotating with this cast of characters, how do they fit into what you're doing? And how do you layer these things together without, I mean, I'm assuming there's a, there is a spont spontaneous aspect about most of this, right? Or some of this, or not. When I lay the Motown book on the piano, and I lay my arias for soprano, arias for mezzo, next to one another, I just see the similarity, the black dots, like the art of that. Mm -hmm. I've written songs where I just like how the black dots were fitting. But do you find the, the, the chord structures that work together and then layer them? And then... I hear them, yeah. yes. I, I've sing something, I'll say, this is just like such and such. But I've been collecting that 
feeling and that experience my whole entire life. Yeah. So I'm pretty virtuosic at this point at being distracted by how much something sounds like something else. So give us give us an <laughs> example of of some of the layering that you did. So like do 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 fits entirely over do 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 So that's non so pure. Pardon pardon my voice. But no, no, no. yes. Yeah, they, non so pure that's the Mozart yeah. Carabino aria and then the other sugar pie honey bunch, yes. right? Like yeah. with tracing paper, yeah. if you put it over, it can happen simultaneously and the chords don't clash. Amazing. Because the progressions are sympathetic. In fact, why don't we take a listen to that performance as well? This is Sugar Pie Honey Bunch mashed up with Non So Piu, rather, Cherubino's aria from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. Again, this performance at the Highline Ballroom last November 2011. Hmm. Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. That's what he said. You know that I love. And then sometimes I've really wanted to perform a song, like Old Maid and the Thief. That's an so aria. So good. That moment I was like, oh my God. Yay. Yeah. That made me happy. Because I first heard that aria the summer that we were together at the camp. That song I just wanted to perform because it's something I had worked on with Shirley Verrett. And on my brain, on the top of it, is this tape. It's about... 25 seconds long of her singing the recitative in our lesson. It's when you are taking lessons with someone who you have read and you have heard brought La Scala down many, many, many a night where they do not let someone leave the stage for an hour or is mobbed after Bellini style. When that sort of energy and persona does your art song from Manhattan School of Music or wherever you are coming from for you, just offhand, blasé, I think it might feel something like this. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's imprinted on my brain. So I just wanted to perform it because I didn't really have a venue to perform a song right. like that. Let's take a listen to this version of the recit and the beginning of the aria from Menotti's the old maid and the thief. The aria is, what a curse for a woman, moving into, steal me, sweet thief. Oh, 
Sweet Thief gets and Letitia, the character, really get to the heart of what I think the connection for me is between opera and Motown, which is a lot of crazy women or crazed women, women crazed over something, the craze being all the music that you must make to contend with this thought that's entered your head at this moment. And all of these men that do these things to make these women like this. Or the women who do the things to make the men do the things that they do. Like, out, out, damn spot, and then he goes and kills a bunch of royal babies? I mean, what's the matter with you? So I kind of, like, am really seized by those moments. That's what draws me to opera, are just those things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I had to find a song for that. And I think Diana Ross, like, those eyelashes and those wigs and that skinny, skinny, skinniness and the whole Barry Gordy drama and artistic professional love affair, I guess I will call it, is very compelling to me. So those, I made those work. And I just found a song where the harmonies would work and I laid it right on. And then yeah. I decided this is actually works so well. What a curse for a woman is it to me? What a curse for a woman just, yeah. to just to go there because I'm sorry, that's what he was feeling at his piano when he wrote that. Right. I mean, he was quite a psychotic. Well, oops. Say, say it. That. It's all good. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. I didn't say that, but, you know, I'm these gonna... are real emotions. That's what I was So saying. you were talking about uh, one of your mentors, Shirley Verrett. Can you uh, talk just briefly about how you marry the vocal technique together for these two genres? And if it's different, or if you're, if, if, um, 
if you've somehow found a way through both to navigate both, or if it's different, or if it isn't, or that is. I think that deciding I wanted to sing in English um, was a very helpful moment for just getting my mouth open in my classical singing anyway. Um, teachers like Catherine LaBeouf at Manhattan School of Music, but then teachers like Aretha Franklin, there are just moments when your mouth has to be open. Betty Allen, I studied with, or not studied with, but she was taught the master class at Harlem School of the Arts for many years, and she was a fantastic supporter. Um, her big thing was open your mouth. So, you know, what does that mean? Makes sense, though. I mean, I think a lot of singers spend a lot of time just listening to themselves, and so they don't necessarily sing with their outside voice, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And it gets into that, that inner, outer, and what you hear, what you think. Mm -hmm. I, if I did open my mouth on this eval, what's the worst thing that could happen? Mm -hmm. But in a, in, a, in a classical setting, I know that you panic and you lose sleep over things like that. Yeah. Because the worst thing that you can happen is you go splat. The voice thins out, you get hoarse. Right. The voice cracks, people didn't like that song. You don't get the audition because now your bottom's too heavy and you can't get up and your high notes are sad and weak. Or, you know, it, they have real ramifications, these things like open your mouth on the other vowel and this kind of thing. So I just think that in Motown, what's very freeing for me about quote-unquote pop music is that if you're not expressing the moment you really are failing yeah. the assignment. Whereas in classical music, there are many ways to give an incredible musical vocal experience to people to the point where you're improving their health that they've heard you sing. You've changed the atoms in their body and still probably maybe not convincing as just about to kill yourself in your <laughs> dido. Like, you know, I don't really believe you're thinking, but that's not what I'm really looking for mm -hmm. in that moment. I really want to just hear the pathos and that spin up at the top. Mm -hmm. Remember me, make me think of a far away. I want to hear distance in the voice. Yeah. I don't necessarily, you know, need you to drag yourself around Ethel Merman style and like sell it to me in your throat. You know, it's like not that, though I would believe Ethel Merman would kill herself at the end of, but you know what I mean? So it's just like a kind of a different assignment. Yeah. And I decided that the immediacy plus the classical technique in, an, in a way that I could just put in my hands to make people forget one or the other would be a good idea. No, I can use my head voice and be black and sing music with rhythm, actually. <laughs> and no, I can be a little warmer and juicier here without muddying up Mozart with some sort song. of period popular thing. Yeah. And then when you get into that, you're also messing with people's ideas of, for me, when I get very clear in what I am doing, is showing people the black person that I am. At any rate, Alicia, you are going to be in residency at the Whitney Museum in New York City for five days from the 9th to the 13th of May. That's for their 2012 biennial. Uh, you're going to be joined by uh, your husband, Jason, who himself is a MacArthur Fellow and the Artistic Advisor for Jazz at the Kennedy Center. Um, and you guys are going to present five days of live music 
including your Motown project on the 10th of May at 5.30. I just uh, wanted to get that plug in there. And I also just wanted to say thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for asking me questions that make me think about myself. Because I haven't said some of these things. It's very interesting to hear what you think and what you want to show people. Yeah, very cool. Thank you. Thanks, of course, to our sugar pie honey bunch, Matthew Principe, our producer, of course. Without him, this podcast would not exist. If you want to hear more Alicia, you can check out her website, and that is www.alishahallmoran.com. And on our website, www.sparksandwirycries.com, we are going to be posting up video from her performance at the Highline Ballroom. They are really special. I hope you go and check them out. Thanks again for listening. This is Sparks and Wiry Cries.